Today's scripture comes from Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 to 13. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place." For we are about to destroy this place because, of, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. All right. Let me uh, just say congratulations again to our 37 new members, uh, especially to William Jacob and our 10 new babies uh, that are a part of our community. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, I was sharing with our staff this week that uh, over the past month, we've talked about Israel and Hamas. We did our nine-year anniversary service. Uh, we talked about emotional abuse a couple weeks ago. And today, we're going to be looking at the topic of sex and sexuality. And I just want to say two things about um, all the stuff that we're talking about. The first thing I want to say is that um, we can't talk about every hot-button issue. Okay? I, I am not an expert on everything. I am a local pastor that is just trying to open up the Bible and understand the intersection of our faith and culture. So we can't talk about every hot-button issue. On the other hand, uh, if we don't talk about some difficult things, then what in the world are we doing? You know, We are here to be a voice. We are here to disciple you and shepherd you. And if we don't do that, you will get it from TikTok, YouTube, or somewhere else, and those things will catechize and disciple you. And so we have to talk about these things. And so today we're going to be taking a look at the topic of sex and sexuality. Uh, to put these topics into context, okay, we've been doing a teaching series on Genesis, which will actually be wrapping up on Christmas, so we're not going to be able to finish the whole thing, but uh, chapter 22 is a good place to pause. Uh, but we're doing a series on Genesis, and last week we talked about the importance of social justice, corporate responsibility, and interceding on behalf of our city. 
And the reason why God was outraged by the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah is because the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah did not practice social justice. They, they, they did not help the poor and the needy, and they did not intercede on behalf of their city. In Ezekiel 16.49, it says this, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, <clears throat> overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. There it is. They did not practice social justice. Now, if you're here today for the first time, you might be thinking to yourself, this is my kind of church, a church that's talking about social justice, helping the poor and the needy, interceding on behalf of the city. Because guess what? Injustice is not limited to episodic acts of hate against certain ethnicities. It is not limited to a pandemic. It is not limited to a hotly debated election. Injustice is 24-7, 365. And so justice is something that we have to continually care about as we practice corporate responsibility for the marginalized and the weak in our city in particular. But if you tend to be a little bit more right or center-right, me even talking about social justice might make you a little bit uncomfortable. Today, we're talking about sex and sexuality. Now, if you tend to be right or center-right, this might make you feel a little bit more comfortable. And if you tend to be left or center-left, this might make you feel a little bit more uncomfortable because we believe in the historic, biblical, orthodox position on sex and sexuality, and that is this, that God designed sex not, not to be between a male and a male, or between a female and a female, not even between a male and a female, but God designed sex to be between a husband and a wife within the context of marriage, and even then, there has to be consent that is given. Now, if you're right or center right, you might be more comfortable with this. If you tend to be left or center left, this might make you feel uncomfortable. So the question is this, what in the world are we as Christians? Are we left or are we right? This baffled the first century uh, Roman historian Suetonius because the first century Christians didn't fit in a particular box. They were too liberal for their conservative friends and they were too conservative for their liberal friends. And so the Roman historian Suetonius was very baffled by these group of Christians, which is why he referred to them as another genus or another species of people, because they didn't fit nicely in any particular box. For example, he says in his early works that Christians didn't serve in the military to specifically serve Caesar's wars of conquest, so they didn't serve in his wars. They liberally gave to the poor and they empowered women. Now, what does that sound like? That sounds pretty left. On the other hand, they didn't practice abortion or infanticide, which was rampant in the first century world. They didn't practice sex outside of marriage and they were monotheistic. They, were, they exclusively believed that Jesus was God. They were not polytheistic. So they were a lot more narrow-minded then open-minded to the hundreds and thousands of gods that there were. 
No one group of people ever in history held these multiple tensions together at the same time, which is why Suetonius was completely baffled at these group of people because what he didn't realize is that Christians back then and today, we are nonconformists. We don't, we don't fit easily into any particular box. Or as Rick Warren would say, I'm not left-wing or right-wing, I'm for the whole bird. Or to phrase it another way, our ethics are not left, they are not right, nor are we moderate in the middle. Rather, our ethics come from above, from God. So they are kingdom-minded ethics. Or as Keller would say in his New York Times article, how did Christians fit into the two-party system? They don't. Keller writes this, Biblically, Christians ought to be equally and energetically concerned about guarding the life of the unborn, about racial injustice, about the plight of the poor, and about promoting sexual morality and the health of the family. We should not have to choose among these, should not have to play down about some of them in order to promote others. But across the West, the dominant political parties call its members to do just that because of the ideological nature of politics and the package deals. We must not identify Christian faith closely with any of them. So if you are a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you not to place yourself in a box. If you are not a Christian, I also want to encourage you not to place us in a box because we don't really fit in anywhere. That was the case back then. That is also the case today. And so today what I want to do is to talk about sex and sexuality from the ancient point of view, from the modern point of view, and I also want to talk about our position, but more importantly than our position, I want to talk about our posture with regards to sex and sexuality. So read with me again verse 1 through 3 where it says this. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. Here we see two angels coming to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, typically when you see angels, sometimes they bring good news, like Gabriel does to Mary that she conceived. Other times, angels also bring bad news, such as the case that is here with God bringing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. When Lot meets these two angels, he forces them to stay at his house versus the town square, because in verse 4 to 5, we read this. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, that phrase, know them, uh, is referring to sexual relations. So Adam knew Eve, right? That's referring to sex. And so here, I want to talk about both the ancient and the modern view of sex. The ancient view of sex in many ways was that sex was just an appetite. And so if you had a craving for sex, you have sex. Just like if you have a craving to eat food, you eat 
food as well, which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.13, he juxtaposes food and sex. He says, you say food for the stomach and stomach for food. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality before the Lord and the Lord for the body. Why does Paul talk about food and then immediately talk about sex? It's because in the ancient world, the ancients viewed sex as just an appetite. And so if you had these desires <clears throat> or hunger, you quenched that hunger uh, by having sex. And so in many ways, the, uh, the way that uh, sex was perceived, because it was viewed as an appetite, it was very normative in the ancient Near East and in the Greco-Roman world because sex was an appetite. It was very normative for there to be sexual abuse and sexual assault. And that was not only the case back then, but that is also the case today as well. One of the reasons why we have the Me Too movement is because in many ways we view sex as an appetite in our modern culture just like the ancients did. I quoted an agnostic atheist last week who I had no idea is being accused of sexual assault today. I had no idea. But again, one of the reasons why it is so rampant in our culture is because we view sex as an appetite. However, the Christian view is that sex is not an appetite because your body is actually not your own. It belongs to another. And so in 1 Corinthians 7, 4, it says, Paul says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. You know what this verse is talking about? Consent. Christianity was the first movement in the world that talked about the importance of consent. It was very normative in the ancient Near East and Greco-Roman world for a woman to be with one man, but it was not normal for a man to be with one woman. Men had multiple wives, and so prostitution was also very normative in that culture. And here, Paul is saying, women, your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to your husband. But, husbands, your body doesn't belong to you either. It belongs to your spouse, your one spouse. And so you can imagine how empowering this was for women in particular when they heard this new sexual revolution and sexual ethic on how to live in that culture that was there. Because sex in many ways, uh, what we see today in our culture is that uh, oftentimes there is a blurring of what consent is, but even more than that, when we decouple sex from love, right, what we no longer emphasize is commitment to one another, okay? And so, one of the things that was happening in the ancient Near East and in the Greco-Roman world uh, was sex without consent and assault and abuse. The other thing that was also normative in that culture uh, was homosexuality, much like our world today. I want to share with you a Gallup poll from two years ago talking about the different generations who identify with the LGBTQ community. And as you can see, with every generation, uh, there is an increase of uh, generations that um, identify as LGBTQ. Gen Z is slightly over 20%, and we'll see what Gen Alpha uh, looks like. And the reason why I bring this chart up is because sexuality and sex is a topic that we can't 
like not talk about. Okay, so I want us to get comfortable talking about um, difficult issues uh, like this. And I already stated before what our position is with regards to what we believe uh, with regards to sex and sexuality. But here's what I don't want to do. I do not want to go into a deep theological treatise or dive on why we believe what we believe. We can do that another time. Okay. So I'm much less interested in talking about our position I am far more interested in talking about our posture. And the reason why I'm more interested in this is because when you take a look at all the Barna surveys with regards to young people in particular and how they view the church, they view it in two ways. There are lots of positive things that young people view the church as, but there are also negative things that young people view the church with. The two things that the younger generation um, associate negatively with the church is this. Number one, it is overly political, okay? And it's going to get even more political come November. But the second thing is, is that the church today is way too anti-gay, okay? The reason why the gay community leaves the church is not because of our position, though. The reason why the gay community leaves the church is because of our posture. And yet, take a look at what Jesus says in John 13, where Jesus says this, Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I was talking with a dear friend in our own community a few years ago, um, and they were sharing with me how um, they are same-sex attracted. And you have to realize that when someone talks about something that intimate and that personal, uh, it takes some guts to talk about something that personal. And so I, I thank them for sharing that with me. And we were talking about, because they were wrestling through like the intersection of their faith and sexuality, because they've always kind of felt like this. And so we were talking about that, and, and I said, you know, thank you for confiding in me. Have you, have you talked to anyone else yet? And they said they've talked to a few close friends. And I said, how, how did that go? And you know what they said? Overwhelmingly supportive, positive, and loving. Overwhelmingly. And at that moment, I was just so proud of our commu- uh, community for our posture towards those that are same-sex attracted. And I talked to them again this week, and I asked them, you know, are you comfortable with me, you know, anonymously sharing your story? And they said, yes, if it can, if it can help in any way, in any way please, please share the story. And it's been some time since we talked about this, this and, and so I said, you know, what's it been like lately? You know, like, how is, you know, how is the, the support and whatnot? And they said, it's still the same overwhelmingly positive and supportive as they navigate through this. And I was so proud of our church and our community at our posture towards those that are in the same-sex attracted LGBTQ community. Love has, and it will always be, our greatest apologetic. The moment our theological positions become greater than our relational position, we have failed to act like disciples of Jesus Christ. But he calls, because he calls us to love 
every single person that enters into our life. So on the one hand, we can't affirm everything. On the other hand, we cannot be Westboro Baptist Church. Love has and always will be our greatest apologetic. But you know what the second greatest apologetic is if love is the greatest? The second greatest apologetic is humility. In 1 Timothy, right after Paul talks about homosexuality being a sin, he writes these surprising words in 1 Timothy 1. Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Here is a heterosexual cisgender man, single man, saying that I am the chief of all sinners. Humility, not superiority, is the posture that Paul had, Jesus had, and we must have as well. And that includes our posture towards sex and sexuality. And, when you, and the reason why I say this is because when you take a look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's very easy to point out homosexual behavior. But notice what the heterosexual, cisgender, God-fearing man named Lot does. In verse 6 through 8, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Lot is telling these men not to do these wicked things, and yet he himself is acting very wickedly by offering his two virgin daughters without their consent to be assaulted. It wasn't only these men that saw sex as an appetite, but it was Lot as well. He was willing to save these angels, but he was not willing to save his own daughters. And so from a biblical perspective, here is the point. The main point is this. There is no such thing as a straight person. Every single one of us here, every single one of us is sexually broken in one way or another. Whether it is the heterosexual man that is masturbating and watching porn, sexually broken. Whether it is the heterosexual female who lives a promiscuous life, sexually broken. The heterosexual man who is married and having sex without consent, sexually broken. There is no such thing as a straight person. We are all sexually broken in one way or another. And because of that, there should be a level of humility that we have towards everyone's brokenness. And I say that because Jesus raises the standards even higher, and he says that if you even look lustfully, you don't even have to do anything, but if you even look lustfully at someone, you've already committed adultery. And that is every single one of us here from a biblical perspective, sex in many ways is like a fire. If the fire is within the constraints, the healthy boundaries of a furnace, it can warm the whole house. But the moment that you take that fire out of the furnace, it can also burn the whole house down. And believe it or not, if you listen to today's academic discourse within the feminist, secular, uh, feminist, secular, liberal community, Within that community, if you listen to the academic uh, discourse by people such as Luis Perry, who's written a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, they are not right. They are left. They will also tell you that the moment we take the fire out of the furnace, 
that is the precise moment that things can uh, run amok. Aldous Huxley in Ends and Means writes this, For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality, particularly religion. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. And so for Huxley, he didn't want to be a Christian because he felt like Christianity was a straitjacket that inhibited his sexual freedom. And here I want to talk about what freedom really is then. Because from a biblical perspective, freedom isn't the absence of restraints, but true freedom is the presence of the right constraints. So there was a study done in Brooklyn not too long ago with kids running around a playground. And when they put a boundary or a fence around the playground, the kids felt safe enough to roam around everywhere. There was another study done with the kids. They removed the fence or they removed the constraints and boundaries. And what they discovered is that the kids did not feel the freedom or safety to run around everywhere. True freedom isn't the absence of constraints, us doing whatever we want. True freedom is the presence of the right constraints. But the question is, what are the right sexual constraints that we should follow or act on in in terms of how we live our lives? And it was this combination of, of sexual freedom run amok and the lack of social justice taking place in Sodom that led God to be outraged by this community and to bring judgment on these cities. And the natural question is always, how can a loving God do something like this? F. Del Bruner writes, uh, writes, the wrath of God is not the irritability of God. It is the love of God in friction with injustice. Because God is loving, he also has a sense of righteous anger as well. He hated the injustice that was taking place to the poor and the needy and to those that were being sexually abused because this wasn't just about sexuality but abuse. Or as someone once said, everything is about sex except sex. Sex is ultimately about power. And what we see is a misuse of power that is here. And so as a result, in verse 12 to 13, it says, Then the, man said, then the men said to Lot, the two angels, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. What's interesting here is that despite Lot's own sins, the angels are willing to save him and his family, and the question is, why him? It certainly wasn't because of his sexuality or his ethics. He was clearly sexually broken and clearly a horrible father. So why is it that Lot was able to escape judgment and find salvation? It had nothing to do with him. That's the thing. It had everything to do with his uncle Abraham and his righteousness, which ultimately points to the righteousness of Jesus Christ and what he has done. God sent his son Jesus into our world. And for Jesus, his food or his appetite was to do the will of his father, He didn't see his own body as his own to do with it as he pleased, but he laid down his body, his naked body on a cross to die for our sins for his spouse, his bride, that is the church. 
One of the things that we see in the sexual revolution is a decoupling of sex and love and commitment. But what we see Jesus here is because he wanted to have union or relationship with us, he loved us and committed himself to us so much in the fact that he was willing to die on behalf of our sins because of his radical love for you and for me. And what that means for us is that if he wants to be an exclusive monogamous relationship with you, that means that we have to be in an exclusive relationship with him. No other gods before him. Not money, sex, power, or even babies. We exclusively belong to him and have no other gods that are before him. What that also means is that as a new community of people that follow Jesus, we also had to be a city within a city. And we have to shine our light brighter than all of our billboards and skyscrapers. We have to be an alternative city within this great city and to point people on how to live and where they can truly find freedom and truly find flourishing in their lives. And what does that look like? It looks like practicing social justice, caring for the poor, the needy, and the neglected. And also pointing to our city a radical new way of understanding sex and sexuality as well, that all people might know him. And the way that we do that is twofold. Number one, again, remembering that love is our greatest apologetic. And number two, remembering that the second greatest apologetic is humility. And that is what we see on the cross. Love, humility. And we have to do the same if we're going to make a difference in our city. Let's pray together. Lord, it is my prayer that as you take a look at our city, that you would see something different about us. That you would see a group of people in this large city that do care about social justice, the poor and the needy. And yet at the same time, understand that our bodies are not our own. We don't get to live autonomous individual lives because we are in a love relationship with you. And just as you sacrifice your body for us, help us to be the kind of people that sacrifice our bodies for the sake of others in our community and the city that we live in. Help us to be a city within a city. Help us to be a salt and a brighter light than all the billboards and lights in our city because we love the city and we love you. In your name I pray, amen.